So today we will today will be, excuse me, our final lesson studying the doctrine of salvation as it is applied to believers. Now, over these weeks, you know, we have seen how the work that Christ accomplished in redemption is important, vitally important. However, it does not mean anything if it's not effectually applied to us. The application of redemption is what we have come to understand as salvation. Now, I've said this countless times throughout this entire series. Salvation is not one singular act. However, it is a series of acts, series of processes. And those series of acts is what we know as the ordo salutis, or in other words, the order of salvation. Now, within the ordo salutis, you have nine acts. You have your effectual calling. You have regeneration. You have conversion, which includes both repentance unto life and saving faith. You have justification, adoption, sanctification, both definitive and progressive sanctification. Then you have perseverance unto holiness and you have glorification. Now, so far we have covered seven of those nine acts. And today we're going to be concluding by looking at the final two, perseverance as well as glorification. But before we begin, it is important to remember all of the acts that we've already seen over the last few weeks, because all of these acts are interconnected and build upon one another. Now, this is especially important for you to understand as we're going to be dealing with the eternal security of true believers. To fully grasp both that, which is perseverance of the saints and glorification, you cannot forget what we've already learned in the previous acts. You cannot forget how God powerly and effectually draws a sinner to himself. That's important. You cannot forget that work of regeneration in the believer where a person's heart is changed and will is renewed and mind is enlightened through that work of the Holy Spirit. You can't forget how that regenerated person now senses sorrow and guilt for violating God's law and endeavors to now obey God's commandment. This is important. You can't forget how that repentant sinner now understands that their only hope of being pardoned by God, by being acquitted, is not through any work that they themselves conjure up, but by placing their faith upon Christ who died for them. You can't forget how that person who places their faith in Christ alone is now pardoned of their sins and now placed into the family of God. You can't forget how, because they are adopted into God's family, they are endowed with many privileges and benefits. One of those privileges being that they are now given the Holy Spirit, which enables them to fight against sin and the remaining corruption in their flesh. See, all of these acts that we've looked upon over the last few weeks are important and must be understood properly because perseverance and glorification build upon these very important stones. So let's take a look now at the next act, perseverance and holiness or perseverance of the saints, however you want to call it. Our confession of faith defines it in this way. In chapter 17, section 1, they, 
whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. All those whom God has called, regenerated, and able to exercise repentance and faith in Christ, justified and adopted and sanctified, will never be plucked away from that state of grace. Their standing in the family of God is forever secure. As Paul put it in Romans 8, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor night nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. They will continue to persevere as Christians throughout their lives, fighting against sin, sometimes sustaining some bruises and defeats along the way, but ultimately being victorious in the overall war against sin. Now, the Bible is clear as it pertains to our eternal security. Any honest reading of the Bible and of the different passages that the Bible give us will show clearly that our salvation is forever secure. Just a couple of examples. John 6, verse 39, Jesus himself says, this is the will of him who sent me, that all, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. He doesn't say I lose some, you know, some kind of fall away. No, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then he goes one step further in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's pretty clear. No one can snatch them out of the father's hand. Philippians 1 verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He began the work and he will perfect it. And then Jude chapter 24 or Jude verse 24 and 25, we say this regularly in one of, in our benedictions at the end of service. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So Jude says to him who's able to keep you from falling, from stumbling, you cannot twist these verses to mean anything else. You cannot render these verses to mean anything else other than that a true believer's salvation is secure. They will never fall away from the faith. This is what the Bible teaches us. Yet, if that is so true, if the Bible is clear in regards to that, why do so many people have a hard time? with this doctrine. Why do so many people assume, no, 
My salvation isn't secure. I could fall away from the faith. Well, let's look at two objections to this doctrine. The first are some of those warning passages that we read in the scriptures. There are some passages that as you read them, they give they, may, they give the indication as though uh, there might be something to you know, salvation, not necessarily being secure. It seems as though there may be something that we may have to do in order to really stay in that good standing. So let's take a look at one example of that in Colossians 1, verses 22 and 23, where Paul says, Yet he, he being Christ, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul just throws this word in there. If, you know, you're reconciled into his body, if indeed you continue in the faith. That doesn't seem so secure. How about this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, which seems to indicate someone falling away from the faith. The writer of Hebrews says this, again, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Huh. You know, when you read passages like these, it may be thought that if our salvation was truly secure and can't be lost, well, then what's the deal with these passages? Why would we have these passages here that seem to indicate that, well, you know what? Maybe our salvation isn't really so secure. I mean, we saw Paul in Colossians telling us that we have been reconciled into the body of Christ if we continue in the faith. Then we have the writer of Hebrews indicating that some have even tasted the heavenly gift been partakers of the Holy Spirit but then somehow has fallen away. Well, how are we to understand these passages? Because then if we see those other passages where God says that no one can pluck us from his hand, but then we have some passages here which say that some have partook of the Holy Spirit, but then somehow has fallen away, how do we reconcile this? Is, just, is this a contradiction? Is this something to where now we have to be concerned that maybe our salvation isn't secure? What are we to do? Now, this is where I would say, you know, us being Presbyterian really comes in handy in really understanding some of these passages. And the reason I say that is because something that so often gets overlooked when we consider passages like these is the invisible, invisible aspect to the church. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the invisible church consists of all the elect of God throughout all generations. In other words, these are all the people who possess true faith in Christ. When we talk about the visible church, what we mean are that it's um, that church that consists of all those who profess faith in God and 
their children. Of the elect of God still alive, all those who are members of the invisible church are part of the visible church body. However, not all of those who are part of the visible church are also members of the invisible church. Now, let me give you an analogy to help clarify this for anyone whose head might be spinning right now. All men are humans, but not all humans are men. All Floridians are Americans, but not all Americans are Floridians. All quarterbacks are football players, but not all football players are quarterbacks. Just because one small group is included in a larger group does not mean that the larger group consists solely of that small group. In the large group of humans, you have not only men, but also women. In the large group of Americans, you have not only Floridians, but you have Texans and New Yorkers and Carolinians. Now, some of you may argue against the New Yorkers, but I was born in New York, so we are American. (laughs) In the large group of football players, you have not only quarterbacks, but you have your running backs, your linebackers, and your centers. Likewise, in the large group that is the visible church, you have the true invisible church, but you do also have false professors in there as well. You do have those wolves in sheep's clothing. You have those tares among the wheat. So when the authors are writing these letters, they are writing, don't forget, to the visible church body. And in doing so, they must be cognizant of the fact that Although many in their midst are truly regenerate, there are some unregenerates who are reading as well. Therefore, we have the warning passages in the Bible, not to make true believers think that they are not Christians, but rather to stir up all those in the visible church to examine themselves. Don't be presumptuous. Make your calling and election sure, like Paul said, or Peter says. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So when we read passages going back to Hebrews 6, where it appears as though someone lost their salvation, know that this is not the case at all. Though they were part of the visible church, their apostasy shows that they were not true members of the invisible church. They may have been part of the church body, visible body, and witnessed and heard the preaching of the word of God. They may have even partook of the Lord's Supper. They may have understood some of the doctrines of the faith. Yet, if they did not continue in the faith, what they possessed was not real faith, but counterfeit faith. In the words of John in his letter, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So it's not that a true believer has lost their salvation. It's not that somehow they were one of the ones that were be able to be plucked out of God's hand. No, it was that they were never one of God's sheep. Now, along with this objection is another common objection, that the doctrine of our eternal security encourages presumptuousness. You know, if a person just assumes that his salvation is secure, now he'll just live any kind of way. 
Now, it might be true that there are some people that want to misconstrue this doctrine in such a way as to excuse sinful living. I will not deny that. However, other people's misunderstanding and misapplication of this doctrine is not a reason to deny the doctrine. Just like you have plenty of people that misunderstand the Trinity doesn't mean the Trinity is not true. When we read our Bible, not only does God instruct us about our salvation being forever secure, he also instructs us how we're to live in light of that. We are called to put off the deeds of the flesh. We are called to put on the armor of God. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Properly understanding our eternal security will include an understanding of holy living. The call to holy living, that's the outward means by which we stay on the proper path as Christians. You know, God not only ordains the ends, but also the means as well. Now, this is why, you know, that common adage that sometimes you hear many people say, once saved, always saved, is not necessarily the best way to explain this doctrine. It doesn't mean that that's not true, because it is true. Once you are saved, you are always saved. However, it's not complete, you know, this saying in and of itself, without any real understanding of perseverance, could lead to a presumptuous thinking that many Arminians and Roman Catholics argue against us about. See, understanding this doctrine as we in the Reformed community understands it, as perseverance in holiness, perseverance of the saints, well, that's less likely to lead to that false thinking because there is the proper understanding that the security of a believer is not done in a vacuum. The believers persevering in their faith until they die. They are resting in Christ alone for justification, but they are fighting against sin throughout their lives. Their victories over sin are not meant to make them assume that by their power they're justified, but rather are proof that God is indeed at work in them. Philippians 2 verses 12 through 13, Paul himself says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this brings us actually to the last point before we move on to the next act. Who is truly at work in the believer to ensure that their salvation is secure? Well, Paul says it in Philippians 2. It is God. We have the Holy Spirit in us who is working to ensure that we don't ever fall away. Now, this is why we can be assured of our salvation. Because it is not us working. It is God in us causing us to work and to will for his good pleasure. If you remember in our uh, my sermon on justification and adoption, one of the privileges, one of the benefits that we as believers have is we have the Holy Spirit who is given to us, who is the seal of our forever claim to eternal life. Again, remember what Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So we have the Holy Spirit in us. He is the seal, the stamp that we are one of God's children. Now, in us persevering in holiness, there comes the point in time that all believers, except those, I guess, who will be there when Christ returns, but for all of those who aren't, who, um, aren't there when Christ returns, we will at some point die. Yet even in our death itself, that's not the end of the overall process of salvation. There is still one final act that must take place, and that is our glorification. Glorification is the final act in the process of salvation, where believers at the last day, after being regenerated, justified, adopted, sanctified, will now receive their perfected bodies and enjoy eternal bliss in the new heavens and earth. For those who were already dead prior to this final day, their souls, which was made perfect after their death and are in the presence of Christ in heaven, well, their souls will be reunited with their bodies. For those who are alive on the final day, their bodies and souls will be immediately changed into that state of blessed perfection. Our salvation as believers involves the whole man, body and soul. Now, this understanding runs so counter to how oftentimes believers think of salvation. You see it even among, like I said, Christian circles. We live our lives as though our body does not mean anything in the future. You got people nowadays that take care of their body. You know, they'll go to the gym, they'll eat healthy and all of that. But little thought is given to their body after they die. Many Christians think of the afterlife as merely a place where their souls will be forever and their bodies will just be cast off. As a result of kind of this thinking, you have even many Christians increasingly who after they die just decide to just let their um, bodies be cremated because yeah, it doesn't matter. The body's full of sin anyways. Well, the scriptures don't make that case at all. Our bodies are just as important as our soul to God. Just as when Adam sinned, the whole man fell, bottom body and soul, when we were redeemed, it is the whole man that God redeemed, both body and soul. Therefore, the ultimate end of salvation is not merely that our souls be glorified and perfected, but that our bodies are as well. I mean, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Then he goes on to say in, verse, uh, in verses 22 of the same chapter, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 
So you see, our redemption, our salvation involves the whole man, not just the soul, but also our body. Now, when does this glorification take place? Well, it does not take place as soon as we die, but rather this final act of glorification takes place for all believers at one time on the last day when Christ returns. Our confession of faith tells us in chapter 32, section 2, at the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Now, in our glorification on the last day, Christ himself will be glorified all the more. Don't forget into whose image we, be, we are being conformed to. We're being conformed into Christ. Um, we, excuse me, being conformed into Christ fully in our glorification will lead to Christ himself receiving even more honor, even more glory. Robert Raymond explains it in this way in his systematic theology. He tells us that, and I quote, for God's determination to conform a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, to the likeness of his well-beloved son, was designed as a means to effect a still higher end. The final phase of his glorification of his son and their savior and messianic king. See, in our current state, we are able to praise Christ, but we are still encumbered with sin that makes our praise of Christ still imperfect. In our glorified state, we won't have that roadblock of sin to keep us from perfectly magnifying and glorifying Christ. In our glorification, we will be able to fulfill what our chief end is as humans, to glorify Christ and to enjoy him forever. Now, in our glorification, our bodies, again, will be made perfect Every stain of sin and corruption will be removed and we will have bodies which are no longer encumbered by the effects of the fall. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57, Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our bodies are made perfect. We no longer have to deal with the effects of the fall. We no longer have to worry about death anymore. It would have been conquered. Not only are the bodies of believers the benefactors of glorification, but all of creation as well. You know, as a result of the fall, all of creation are suffering the after effects of that. I mean, God told Adam 
after he sinned. Cursed is the ground because of you. On the last day, when Christ returns, creation will be restored and made new. The promised land that believers will dwell in will be one in which all the effects of the fall are removed. John writes in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out, from, um, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So over the last six weeks, we have seen how God, in accomplishing that redemption through the work of Christ, applies that redemption to us. God applying redemption to us was not in one act of salvation, but through a series of acts in the order of salvation. Those whom God chose before the world was created, he effectually calls in time and space to embrace the gospel through the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. Those whom the Spirit regenerates are unable to truly repent of their sins and savingly trust in Christ alone for their redemption. Upon placing their faith in Christ alone, God pardons them of their sin in the act of justification through the work of Christ imputed to them. Being justified, they are now also adopted into the family of God and begin to enjoy all the privileges that come with that. Not only are they adopted into God's family, they are set apart as holy. With the Holy Spirit now given to them, as a seal of their future inheritance, they are enabled to fight sin throughout the rest of their lives. Though there are some moments in which, because of the remaining corruption in their flesh, they give in to temptation and fall into sin, the work of God in redemption is so perfect, so complete, that nothing can ever remove them from their current position as a redeemed child of God the Holy Spirit will continue to enable them to will and work for the pleasure and glory of God. The final culmination of the applied work of redemption is them now being completely glorified with renewed bodies and souls and dwelling in the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. In this restored paradise, they will get to truly glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the entire process of the precious work of redemption that is applied to all true believers. This is our salvation from beginning to end. So this concludes our lesson in the study of redemption applied.